Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a playwright and a screenwriter who's best known for the films The Iron Lady, Shame and Suffragette. Her career in film and television have earned her numerous awards, including BAFTAs and an Emmy. Her first book, This Is Not a Pity Memoir, delves into a moment in her family's life that changed its trajectory from an ordinary day to the end of an ordinary life. This book is about grappling with grief, holding on to love and the comfort one finds in hope. It's also very funny. Abby Morgan, welcome to Meet the Writers. Oh, thanks for having me. This is, the title should not mislead one. And of course, we know that the content is harrowing, but somehow you're unable to kind of repress that spark of humour that seems to be in everything you do. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm always trying to look at the extraordinary and the ordinary. And actually, I find the ordinary really, really funny. And, you know, I, I think when when this crisis happened to me, which is really what the book centres around, I couldn't help but see the funny side at sometimes. And no one ever tells you that, you know, what often walks hand in hand with tragedy is these glimpses of humour and occasional joy. And you have to really grab those and chase those. So I think it's I'm always doing battle with the despair of the situation and mm. and humour and, and laughing with those around me became incredibly important. I want to go back to before all of this happened, to your early life, in fact, because you were born in Wales. Uh, your mother an actress, your father a theatre director, and you were sort of, I suppose, surrounded by storytelling. Was it inevitable that you would always want to be a storyteller in some sort of guise? Well, I think my one of, you know, one of my earliest memories is feeling, you know, the scratch of those very red scratchy chairs, theatre chairs, it's feeling it on my cheek and I think it was because I used to often fall asleep or be put to sleep on a chair. Normally while my dad was doing some really kind of esoteric kind of, he once did something like a nine-hour David Rudkin play that went on forever and ever and you had to go in and out in various intervals and I think I actually was taken to see it. So that's sort of, <laughs> uh, probably I mustn't mean more like three or four. So, you know, I, in many ways it's kind of amazing I didn't abandon storytelling because certainly my early years I felt like a lot of the time it was sitting in hot theatres but ultimately I think if you watch theatre and I did from very early age in terms of you know particularly with my mother who worked for a long time in rep and it was that era in rep where she was on a three-week cycle so you know one month she'd be doing King Lear and within three weeks she'd be doing Side with Rosie or a Chekhov or any number of extraordinary plays and playwrights work and I think I realised that within sometimes these brilliant sometimes these incredibly boring plays there were always nuggets of truth and things that I loved and I feasted over and I I think early on I realized that writing um, was a way to find form in chaos you know mm. I'd been surrounded by writers my mother's best friend was the novelist Margaret Drabble and so I was in a world where I realized that writing was the thing you did behind the camera outside of the rehearsal room and that really also suited who I was. Mm. I mean it was a very peripatetic childhood you moved around a lot you have a wonderful line our homes were filled with the whisper of production. Mm. Uh, well if anyone great. understands the rhythm and the ecosystem of production you know it's it's everything from the arrival of the play and everyone discussing if it's going to be any good and are they going to get it on stage because you know my dad programmed theatre through to the you know auditions and then rehearsals and then the first night and then the performance and then the last night and then there was the inevitable anticlimactic sag where you could feel the lull in the house and then it would all start up again when you know maybe my mother got a new job or a new play came in for my father so I you know it's a very feast and famine existence but it also has real rhythms to it and you know this Christmas there's pantomime and there's summer seasons and there's plays for that you definitely go in and see in the winter and there's certainly plays that you see in the spring and I think that's always been the kind of metronome for my my growing up and my 
from childhood mm. to early adulthood, really. Your parents divorced, and you describe in the book a, a really happy time, a really transformative time, actually, that you spent with a friend of your mother's. Yeah, I mean, I think we used to, you know, I, I went to seven different schools, and I've, I tended to go to and live wherever there was a theatre. So, you know, I lived in Newcastle-Pontine, I lived in Scarborough, I lived in, you know, Stratford-upon-Avon, I lived in Stoke-on-Trent. All of them have good repertory theatres. But there was always this long for London. I remember when we came to London, it always seemed like the greatest place. And my mum's friend was a a novelist and we used to come up and stay here and it was always really transformative being up here but also this is the story you mean, isn't it? I think it's, you know, for me it was watching the life of a writer and thinking, I want that. And I think, you know, it's interesting, she lived in a four-storey North London house, I talk about it in the book, and she, you know, she married a Jewish actor and I live in a four-storey North London house and I married a Jewish actor, you know. So I think there are parallels with that. But but I'd also see that she'd go upstairs, close the door and she'd just disappear the whole day and at night she'd come home and cook supper and be with her kids. And that was the revelation was that unlike being an actress or director, you didn't go out in the evening, you got to be home with your kids. So I think that was also what was really attractive to me about Mm. writing. You went off to the University of Exeter, you did drama and literature. Then you went to Central School of Drama for a postgrad degree in, in writing. Do you think that that generally people can be taught to write, that writing degrees are helpful? I have very mixed feelings about actual, you know, writing courses. But what I do ultimately think they do is they give a young writer or a writer who's trying to make it in the world, whatever age you are, they legitimise a period of time. They can often provide some form of financial support while you're, you know, but mainly they allow a writer to perfect and craft their art, but also get to know other writers. If you're lucky, you know, meet interesting visiting writers. I don't know if you can be taught per se how to write. I think, you know, AI can now write. You know, I've a version of my scripts. You know, I was with a friend the other day, and she was showing me an AI act, and she said, you know, write a crime drama in the uh, style of. She actually put Abu Morgan, which made more sense, but Abby Morgan. But actually, you know, it wasn't terrible. I mean, it was, so I think there are, you know, there are basics that you can teach anyone. But I think what you really want are the observers in life, those who are willing to reveal, expose, examine go deep into an experience and I think those tend to be the writers in the world Mm. Your first job was writing on Peak Practice which was a television show and I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about what that, what being in the writer's room is like, what that collaborative experience is like. Well it's quite unusual for me because I obviously write completely on my own and what I loved about that early experience was that it wasn't so much a writer's room in terms of, there there were three or four writers that were given an episode and and actually when you talk about apprenticeship I think that's where it probably really started for me. I was assigned a producer and a script editor and and that sort of triptych has always been incredibly important in my work so you know I've, I've had brilliant champions and running partners along the way but what was great about that was you know you had your A story in it you know this was a medical a drama set in a local you know medical practice in the, in the Derbyshire Dales which is a beautiful landscape and and, you know, created a huge clutch of characters. And then, of course, you had the... So the A story had to be the sort of day-to-day drama of, you know, Dr. A and Dr. B, and would they fall in love and would he tell, would she tell her husband? And then there was the B story, which reflected the themes of the A story, which was, a you know, about a woman. Could she go to the doctor or not? Was she too scared to admit that, you know, she had a problem? And then there was always the C story, which was the funny receptionist who had toothache and was, you know, really just because she was eating too many sweets because, you know, she was madly in love with the sweet shop owner. So, you know, you would... <laughs> create these sort of it gave you very simple themes and and structures and so that was really fun and also you get the kick of seeing your work made you know Mm. no one tells you that 
I think one of the most exciting elements of my work for me, and, and I think it's coming from a place of theatre where I really appreciate the ensemble, but also where it's always been a job, is that for me the most exciting moment is when I come to the end of, a, of seeing a film or a piece of television I've worked on and the credits roll and I see two, three hundred people and I think two, three hundred people might had employment out of this and that gives me the biggest kick Yeah, because whilst I am not a CEO of a company it does start with a blank page and I always feel a huge sense of, of, of satisfaction that this piece of work has been owned and you know delivered and made and created and ha- you know it's only happened because of all of those people and mm. all that industry has been made and that feels really really cool actually you've written about real people too so there was the, the Dickens show but there was also Margaret Thatcher mm. Yeah, I mean, um, Margaret Thatcher was really interesting. I was approached by Pathé Films at the time and they had a really good script actually about Margaret Thatcher and the sinking of the Belgrano, but they couldn't find a way to get it funded and it wasn't quite working for them. And so I was, I read it and, and I really started again. And I, I think what I was interested in about Margaret Thatcher, you know, certainly she, love her or hate her, she's been an absolutely important strand, certainly if you've grown up through the 70s and 80s, was that I wanted to look again at the extraordinary and the ordinary and the ordinary and the extraordinary. And I I felt like you take an iconic figure like Margaret Thatcher and you look at it in the concept of the power of loss and the loss of power of this woman, you know, and and I chose very specifically to look at this period of time that had been recorded by her own daughter, which is that period of dementia, and imagine what would it be like for her to reflect back on her career and very sort of key moments in her career. So Mm. so it was, you know, I, I still feel very fortunate I got to write that film you know, you you referenced Charles Dickens, you know, that that was based on Claire Tomlin's brilliant sort of biography of Nellie Turnan, who was the young lover of Charles Dickens. And again, you know, as much as you may take, you know, real characters in life, it's always a reinvention. It's always a recreation. And I think even when you're working with factual people, even documentary has a, an element of storytelling. Mm. What about adaptations, though, like Brick Lane mm. or uh, Birdsong? Mm. I mean, both of those are really interesting. I mean, Brick Lane um, is beautiful, you know, novel by Monica Alley, very different world, very different place, you know, area of East London, which I grew to know and love. And Birdsong, again, extraordinary. You know, we shot that in Budapest. I'm currently shooting something in Budapest again. And my memory of Budapest is is going over there and being in the trenches and watching incredible war scenes being reenacted. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy adaptation. It's not something that I find easy. And I'm always, you know, because I think certainly with a, a much loved novel like you know, Brick Lane, you want to get it right. And interestingly, I just listened to an audio adaptation of it and I thought it was absolutely brilliant, Tanika Gupta. And so I'm reminded that those those kind of brilliant classic novels can keep being reinvented, keep being reintold. So I always feel like I just do one in- interpretation of an adaptation, I guess. Let's move on to this book because it seems to me for the first time you're really writing about something personal. Mm. And it's obviously your first book too. Everything else has been for performance in one way or another. The book concerns your relationship with your now husband. Tell us about meeting Jacob. You say we collided with absolute velocity. Mm. I mean, it's really interesting. I've got teenagers and I always say there are many ones in your life. There's no one person. But, you know, when I met Jacob, I was 31 and I was watching my 
various girlfriends and male friends get married and fall madly in love and starting to have children. And I was thinking it was never going to happen. And I met Jacob sitting opposite him at a dinner party. And, you know, at that time, I was just starting to make it as a writer. It was early days, but I was just sort of starting to. And I, it only felt, it felt very new for me to be able to say I was even a writer. I felt like I waitressed for my entire 20s. And it was just tipping into my early 30s. And I was finally starting to make some money. And um I remember I, at the time I was chasing the film rights to an, another really, really beautiful book, Before I Say Goodbye, which is a memoir by Ruth Picardy, and sadly not with her anymore, but about her battle with breast cancer. And it's a series of articles and emails that she wrote for the newspaper. And it really it's just a most stunning book. And I started to talk about it and how I'd love to make a film out of it. And there was a, a very drunk girl sitting opposite me and she kind of regaled and said, oh, I can't bear those pity memoirs. And... I remember Jacob, this this man who I refer to as Shakespearean beard, sort of sitting there and with his his now I know his very familiar wit and charm. He said, "Oh, really? I I I love those books. Tell me why." And and that's really where the title came from, which is I've come to realise, you know, the book is also an exploration about what is a pity memoir. Why do we write them, and what are they really? Mm. You talk about your feelings for Jacob coming to you as a sort of series of pings. There are, mm. you know, these lovely pings all the way mm. through, and later you talk about the hum of mm. love, mm. and it, just all these sounds seem mm. to be so integrated in, mm. in the text. And I wonder, firstly, if you listen to music while you write, mm. but secondly, how you sort of experience mm. those those sounds. What does the hum of love feel like? That's really interesting that you've observed that. I mean, I think think there is a sort of there is a sort of vibration level to the way I experience life, I think we all do, which is without words. You know, I think when you're constantly working with words, you have to have another part of you, another space within you that is not about always having to define through language. And I suppose, you know, I find it very, you know, who is there ever one definition, for example, of love? But I feel, for me, the definition of love is a hum. And I don't know how else to describe it than that. And what I felt for Jacob is that, and the thing that really surprised me, because every marriage and every relationship has, you know, if you live with someone for 18 years before this this event happened then you're tested and and sometimes that hum goes quieter but when this thing happened with Jacob the thing that surprised me is the hum got stronger and the hum for Jacob got stronger and I guess it's interest and I guess it's it's mutual care and it's it, it fed itself and so you know, it, for me, it was it was a deep connection to something beyond even Jacob and I. It was beyond, you know, when Jacob collapsed from an illness, which is what the book centres around, and his recovery, there were moments where I realised that he wasn't necessarily going to come back and we weren't going to have the relationship that we had. And I had to learn how to let go of needing him to come back and supporting just anyone coming back, a human coming back. And so that's where my love for Jacob became bigger than just the personal. It became mm. about trying to bring back a human back into the world. Let's talk about the incident. He he has MS. Mm. He collapses after he said that you're a, a bad nurse. <laughs> Which I was. <laughs> you don't call the ambulance, interestingly enough. You call a friend to yeah. say he's collapsed on the floor. It's really strange that I still circle that one. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in a way it's interesting about myself that I almost had to legitimately ask someone else if I could do this, you know, to to kind of call the authority. And a friend went, yeah, absolutely, pick it up right now. Uh, and thankfully she did do that. But yes, Jacob claps with a, a seizure in June 2018. I found him on the bathroom floor. And within two weeks, Jacob had physically, cognitively, psychiatrically completely unraveled. And whilst they tried to work out what was wrong with him, he was placed in a in a medically induced coma from which he went you know he stayed in for 7 months and when he came out of that 
we realised that he'd experienced a really rare form of encephalitis and one of the effects of that and one of the consequence of that is that he had developed a really rare delusion called Capgras delusion. So when Jacob woke up, though you could see the spirit of him was there and that equally he was also very changed, the fundamental thing changed was that he he believed that I was an imposter and Capgras is the belief in imposters or doubles and it can happen to someone very close to you. It can be a it can be a pet, it can be a house. It's normally someone you're most close to and it was in this case me. And and so for the next 18 months, Jacob believed that I was initially that I must be someone working for the state who'd come to help him and his children get better. It's I mean, the way you you describe it is absolutely extraordinary. And, and the way you dealt with it, I, I love the descriptions of sort of getting his attention by doing bizarre things mm. like presenting him with a vegetable from a wheelchair mm. or, or moving his food out the way or mm. just doing all of things just to make mm. him come back mm. to you. Jacob's an incredibly playful person. You know, he's always he's always been the fun in the house. You know, he was always, I, I describe him as the kind of captain in the ship. And while I went out and worked, he was the one that really led us on adventures. And so, you know, one of the things was... And, and actually, the one thing with Jacob and I is we could always talk. We've always been able to talk. And I guess that's at the heart of our relationship. But when Jacob first woke up, he was very without any agency or initiation and really didn't speak. I mean, he was really 5% of who he was. And so I pinched him, I punched him, I provoked him. I did anything I could to get his attention. And, you know, in the first few weeks, I didn't realise that he didn't know who I was. And it took until Valentine's Day and the presenting of a really cheesy red heart balloon and him sort of the embarrassment on his face and the look of kind of appalling, you know, discomfort for me, really, that I had done this for him made me realise, oh, my God, he thinks I'm a stalker. He doesn't Mm. know me. And... And when I actually directly challenged, he went, no, you're not Abby Morgan. And that is what he referred to. He said, Abby Morgan has gone away. She's somewhere else. And so, you know, Jake Jake went through a very long period of, you know, of obviously rehab at the hospital. And then he came home in September 2019. And, you know, so began the rehab. But one of the things that became really key to me starting to understand that Jake didn't know who I was, was a day kind of only a few few weeks after he got back which is I was trying to get Jake ready to go and see a consultant and at that time Jacob you know Jacob's balance was terrible you know he couldn't you had to help him eat you had to help him walk you had to get him dressed every day and I sort of managed to get his coat and his jumper and his on and he was clear of crumbs and tea and I was had him leant up against the door and clutching onto his shirt to stop him sliding down the wall reaching for the car keys and I saw him look at himself in the mirror and you know Jacob very rarely registered really he was sort of not quite there and I but I saw himself really looking at him and I said who is that Jacob and he says I don't know and it was then that I realized oh okay it's not that he doesn't know who I am it's that he doesn't know who who he is and actually who you know if you don't know who you are and you've got people around you going you're Jacob you know the person closest to you the one you're going to challenge the most is saying well that can't be true because I don't recognize myself so you must not be who I Mm. think you are Mm. you must not be Abby Morgan and so it made sense and it sort of made it more bearable. And and also Jacob is always, he's a really lovely person. So even when he was, you know, irritated by me and really unsure who I was and actually would ask me to leave the room and, you know, could I step outside because he wanted to spend time with his children. And, you know, the greatest time was, you know, I managed to get, I used to play a game of quizzing him about, you know, ask, getting him to ask me facts about 
you know, our life together. And I say, I know these things. And so we started to talk about the birth of my daughter, and, and which I still think was one of the most happy moments of my life. And we described it together. And at the end, you know, he got very into sort of sharing the story with me. And I said, gosh, it was an in- incredible day. And he said, yes, yes, it was. I wish you'd been there. And, you know, he hadn't even remembered that I, you know, I hadn't been at the birth. So these were kind of big things to navigate. But at the same time, they were so funny. Mm. And I mean, you do, you go into this wonderful kind of detail about things like the changing residence of the ward. And we, we meet different ones, your reactions or your interactions with their relatives in the, in the waiting area. You also talk about, and I don't think enough people do, of the extreme tedium sometimes <laughs> of looking after somebody like that and visiting them in hospital. Yeah, I mean, it has definitely has a kind of waiting for God feeling. You're constantly waiting for a consultant or a nurse or someone to talk to or someone to press the buzzer to let you in or, you know, someone to come and take blood or someone to sort another issue or just another visitor or to get away from someone or, you know, so it does have a sort of strange quality to it. And also, you know, when someone is critically ill, you know, hour by hour, you you have to sit and wait and watch. And one of the things that I learned from it is that you have to give yourself breaks. I think we were really fortunate, you know, Jake's family is incredibly, you know, we're all incredibly close. Jake's family is very close and we kind of set up a relay, you know. But it, it is, you know, it is extraordinary. And I think one of the things that was really interesting was that, you know, whilst we had our kind of overarching consultants, the day-to-day doctors that you dealt with every day, you'd become attached to and then they would all move on. And it was almost inbuilt in the system that you never really got to know someone beyond three months and then they moved on to another unit or another ward. So you were constantly having to reintroduce Jacob and reintroduce his case and reintroduce yourselves and reintroduce the importance because you were looking for connection to try and, you know, Know, help this person and I think what no one tells you is actually it's the nurses who stay forever Yes, and it's the nurses who are like these you know we knew that they we knew in COVID we all went onto our front doorsteps but the experience of watching nurses you know quietly save lives actually continually and quietly save lives you know doctors came in and diagnosed and were absolutely at the helm but it's the nurses who stay up all night and cool someone down when their temperature is dangerously high or it looks like their liver's going to collapse or, you know, and it, it, it's the nurses who really primarily save Jake's life. And of course, you had that experience directly because in the middle of this, mm. you were diagnosed with breast cancer, mm. had to have chemotherapy, mm. had to have a, a mastectomy mm. in the end. I mean, it's so annoying. I feel it's a bad, you know, I talk about it in the book and it feels like a really bad plot twist. And that's not to, you know, that's not to denigrate anyone's experience has gone through cancer because having gone through it myself, it is grueling, you know, and it, you know, sometimes it felt like I was in the middle of the marathon and I just got to the top of one hill and they said, great, now you're going to run up another one and we're going to put a refrigerator on your back. But having said that, whilst I wish it had never happened, one of the things it forced me to do is that I'd been working so hard on Jacob's mortality and I guess the mortality of our family and holding us together. I realised that, you know, health is wealth and actually the buck stopped with me and I had to stop, you know, I had to sleep, I had to eat properly, I had to take care of myself, I had to lie on the sofa. I don't think I've ever watched so much food network in my life and actually, you know, thanks for my family and my friends who looked after me and my my gorgeous dog who sat on the sofa with me and... um, you know, it forced me to lie down and chemotherapy, as horrible as it was, it did mean I had to lie down. And that was interesting. You write, sometimes I wonder now if I willed what happened to happen and because you'd had a dream about it. Mm. But I also wonder if there's only so much trauma a person can take before it does physically manifest. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I am acutely aware is I developed triple um, negative cancer, which isn't genetically based and it isn't hormonally based. It's one of those cancers that, you know, it's random, but it's also stress related. I think I, you know, actually, if I'm honest, I think it was probably ticking away way before Jacob collapsed. But I, I think like anything, you know, inflammation and your immune system coming under attack, you know, I think all of those things were relevant. And it's just a reminder that, you know, you can have as many awards as you want on the shelf and you can have as many houses and you can pat yourself on the back that you've got beautiful children and hopefully a marriage intact. But actually, if you are not looking after yourself, which I certainly wasn't doing, then, you know, there are consequences. Having said that, you know, shit hits us all and there are a myriad of reasons and who knows why and when and how, you know, I think it doesn't really help to take it apart. But but it does, it definitely has given me an, a new attitude, which I don't think I would have had, even though Jake went through, he went through, it was, I think when I got cancer myself, that's when it really distilled that actually there, there were two of us in this boat and I had to, you know, I had to make sure that I could row that boat, you know, mm. I had to stop for a bit. You uh, you write about being dumped by somebody and putting that into a sort of his expert speech mm. into a play. And so I wonder about, writing as therapy. I know that you also read up on about writing anything personal and what mm. the rules were mm. and, and and so on. Was it a big shift for you to tell your own story? I think the, the extraordinary thing is that I obviously I wrote this in the, the winter of the second lockdown. And, you know, I, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, there's only so much gardening and sourdough you can do. But also the winter one was harder. The second lockdown felt a lot harder. It was, you know, the kind of global tragedy and the weight of all that death felt really sad. And I think that on top of everything, you know, Jacob was just home. We were just calibrating, getting used to us all being strangers to each other, actually. And so I did that thing, which I think if the theatres had been open, I would have you know, probably turned it into a play. I had a mad idea to turn it into a play. And, you know, certainly I would probably more likely written to you know, leapt to screenplay writing. But I literally had that feeling, which I've heard other writers talk about, which is it just pours from you. And the first time ever I, you know, the kids would, would be doing their homework or have gone to bed and I would start writing at 10 o'clock at night and I'd find it was three in the morning. And it was incredibly cathartic, but also I realised I was in dialogue, not only myself, not only between, you know, you know, me as a person and the screenwriter who was constantly saying, well, cut that bit, rewind that bit, get rid of that character but mainly and primarily with Jacob because the level of illness that Jacob experienced and then the cancer and having gone through the cancer myself, it was incredibly lonely. And the person I would have shared that with, the person I wanted to talk to about that, Jacob, was not there. So really the book is a conversation as much as anyone, anything, mm. with him. And it is for him. Your son, I think it is, at one point quotes you a line which it turns out you wrote yourself. It's not enough just to survive. You've got to be able to live. Well, I have a horrible feeling that actually it's a Meghan Markle line that she said somewhere. So as <laughs> oh, much no. as I want to take ownership from it, I think it was Meghan Markle. But but yes, my son quotes it back to me, And but it was something I said. And I think it would happen very early on and I will forever be grateful to Love Island because, you know, I've never really watched it since, but that first summer when Jake first collapsed, it really was an incredibly important kind of therapeutic coming together of me and my kids and whoever was on the sofa with us. So I think you become a joy chaser in those moments. You have to find a way to get through it and I mean that you know you just said about trauma I think when you have a level of trauma that becomes so overwhelming survival instinct kicks in and you look for anything that you can be it from you know that pot of ice cream to that swim in the Hampstead Heath Ponds which became really important to me through to just hanging out with my kids and and I I think my biggest fear was that they wouldn't survive this, that they wouldn't mentally and emotionally survive this. And we know in an age where about wellness and self-care and mental health and, 
you know, teenagers have suffered more than anything. And they'd also gone through COVID and they hadn't been able to sit their A-levels and they hadn't been able to go to their prom and they hadn't been able to have their dates and all of those things that I just felt like I had to find ways to, to keep the happiness going and to show them that though their parents' lives were going belly up, this is only one chapter in their life. And I think we all realise that that chapter is incredibly important. Our childhood, you know, going into, into young adulthood is all defining mm. But it is one chapter, hopefully, and then we go on to live other chapters. And so the one thing I wanted was them to have joy. And the thing I'm forever grateful for is that it was my 50th birthday in the middle of it. And um, one of them stole my credit card. (laughs) And with it, they bought flights and a hotel, quite expensive hotel in Florence. And we went to Florence in the November. And I look back now and think, how extraordinary. Me and my kids, you know, smiling and eating ice cream in November. And Jake was... Jake was in hibernation. Jake was in a coma. And I think I realised he wasn't going to come out. And they told us he wasn't going to come out of that coma for quite some time. So the survivalist in me and certainly in my kids said, OK, we've got to go out and do the things that Jacob would have wanted us to do. But he came out of it and he now knows who you are. Yeah. I mean, I think none of us expected Jake to have the level of recovery he's had. You know, I think there's probably another chapter to the book, which is... um, that, you know, I hinted at the end, but that, you know, Jacob and I have been together now 22 years and in the summer of 21 we got married, which was a really uh, lovely, gorgeous, brilliant way to have a gorgeous Italian meal um, <laughs> and um, and for once not care about the calories. And uh, and actually, yes, he's doing brilliantly. He's, you know, he will forever be changed and, you know, cognitively and physically, he's you know, he will be dealing with the repercussions of this for his life. But... You know, I think we all feel that we are getting back and we have got back the man that we love and the father we lost and, and the son that, that I think everyone was concerned would he wouldn't be back for his parents again. So that's been fantastic. And we've got back our fully functioning, wonderful writer, Abby Morgan, oh. to give us more televisual pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. And, and that, that's been the great joy is to be able to go back to writing screenwriting again. Abby Morgan, thank you so much. Thanks so much. This Is Not a Pity Memoir is published by John Murray Press. It's out in paperback now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Andre Nikolai Paminchuan and Callum McLean. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>